The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. July 3rd edition of PFTPM, week three of the PFT Live hiatus. And this feels like a Monday and a Friday all in one because the fourth lands on a Tuesday. So plenty of people off today, but plenty of people working. I'm working. No days off. Hashtag no days off. Hashtag unless I take a day off. But it really isn't work. I would be sitting here thinking about the NFL writing about the NFL, talking about the NFL to whoever would listen. My wife isn't interested and my dog is even less interested. Hopefully some of you out there are a little bit interested in what I'll be saying over the course of the next 30 or 40 or 50 or more minutes. We'll see how it goes. There's still not a whole lot happening in the NFL, but even at the slowest times of the year, there are things to discuss It was an item that I noticed over the weekend, and this traces ultimately back to Greg Bedard of Boston Sports Journal, who, if I understand the chronology correctly, and there's a good chance I don't, but if I understand it correctly, there were some comments that Coach Bill Belichick made at the end of the 2022 season about spending, or lack thereof, over the past three years by the Patriots. Remember, they splurged in 2021, the post-pandemic year, when a lot of teams were strapped for cap space and cash, the Patriots spent a lot of money, but they otherwise haven't been spending a lot. And Belichick pointed that out. So Bedard wanted to see what the guy who writes the checks thought about that. And what Robert Kraft had to say to Bedard, and Bedard recently recounted it I believe on NBC Sports Boston. I think that was the chain of how this all came to light. What Kraft said to Bedard was that Belichick has never come to me and not gotten everything he wanted from a cash spending perspective. We've never set limits. Money spending will never be the issue, I promise you, or I'll sell the team. In contrast, what Belichick said was that they're spending in 2020, 2021, and 2022, if you take all three together, the aggregate puts them at 27th in the league in cash spending. A couple of years we were low, one year we were high. Over a three-year period, we were one of the lowest spending teams in the league. So there's a disconnect there. It's pretty obvious. Belichick stating facts, 27th in the league on a three-year aggregate. Craft, spending is never an issue. Money spending will never be the issue. And I think the use of the word the there is very telling. Money spending will never be the issue. There's a difference, I think, between saying will never be an issue or the issue, because the issue implies the problem, the thing 
that is keeping us from being as competitive as we would like to be. Money spending will never be the issue. Something else is the issue. And maybe, maybe it's Belichick not asking. Because that's what Kraft says. He's never come to me and not gotten everything he wanted. So Belichick can try to foist blame for the fact that the team hasn't been very good post-Tom Brady with one playoff appearance, a 47-17 to 17 loss to the Bills, two non-playoff appearances sandwiched around it. He can say it's lack of spending. It sounds like Kraft would say it's lack of asking because I won't tell him no. I got the money. I need him to say to me, here's what I want to spend and why. But he's decided not to. For whatever reason, it's not his money. Now, look, there are reasons to hold back cash because it does have cap consequences that can hurt you in future years. But it sure sounds like this isn't a situation where Robert Kraft ever said no to Bill Belichick. It sounds like it's a situation where Belichick decided to construct things a certain way. It didn't work. And now he's looking for something to blame other than himself for the issue. And Kraft says the issue will never be the amount of spending. He's in charge of the football operation. It's his decision. I don't meddle. I don't get involved. He makes the decisions. He comes to me. He tells me what he wants, tells me what his needs. And I've never told him no when he wants to spend. Deeper issue, I believe. Because the team has not been among the best in the NFL, and that's an understatement in recent years. And I think there was one point last week where Robert Kraft said that he wants championship number seven. Well, have you looked around the division right now? Have you looked around the conference? Where would we put the Patriots right now in the AFC? On paper. And I know, I know, I know very well. The game is not played on paper, but paper's all we got to go on until it's time to play the games. So right now, on paper, they're fourth in their division. They haven't finished last in their division since 2000, Bill Belichick's first season as coach of the Patriots. 22 years, second longest streak in the NFL of not finishing in fourth place in their division. They're, on paper, the worst team in the division. And getting DeAndre Hopkins isn't going to make them third. You got the Bills, you got the Dolphins, you got the Jets. Right now, I think it goes Dolphins, Bills, Jets, but not much of a gap among them. And if the Jets end up with Dalvin Cook, I don't know. You reshuffle those a little bit. Maybe it goes Jets, Dolphins, Bills at that point. I don't know. But I do know this. Patriots in fourth. So who else is in front of the Patriots? Bengals? Yes. Ravens? Yes. From a talent standpoint, on paper. Jaguars? Boy, it sounds weird to say that. Got to get used to the Jaguars being good. Yes. So that's three more right there. Chiefs? Yes. That's four more. And, And even if we stop there, and you could argue they would fall even lower. You could make an argument... About the Chargers, maybe. Titans, I don't know. Let's leave those out of it. Bills, Jets, Dolphins. Bengals, Ravens. Jaguars, Chiefs. 
That puts the Patriots dead center, eight out of 16. Middle of the pack. Why? Is it quarterback play post-Brady? Look, we know what happened last year, and we know that Robert Kraft isn't happy about it. The Frankenstein monster approach on offense. Matt Patricia, Joe Judge, never should have happened. Belichick's hubris took over. See, he needs to have someone in the building, in the football operation, because Robert Kraft isn't going to do it. Jonathan Kraft isn't going to do it. There needs to be somebody in the football operation that can be Bill Belichick's conscience, his Jiminy Cricket, if you will. Somebody who can say to him, hey, Bill, Bill, there's a fine line between thinking outside the box and just plain effing nutty, and you're on the wrong side of that line. Don't do this. Don't do this. Don't entrust the offense to a career defensive coach. It doesn't work. You're the exception. You're the one guy who can pivot from being defensive expert to offensive expert and be an expert in everything. Most guys can't do it, even if Matt Patricia is really smart, and possibly even smarter than Belichick on paper. Patricia couldn't do it, not in one year. Maybe in time he would have figured it out, but they don't have the luxury of time. That's really the issue for Bill Belichick. We think he has the luxury of time. And I'll get into arguments with people about this because those six Super Bowl championships are viewed as some sort of a lifetime pass. We've never dealt with this before, where you have someone who is that accomplished to the point where he's regarded as the greatest coach in the history of the sport, although Andy Reid's making a pretty good argument. Easy to do when you've got Patrick Mahomes, frankly, to close the gap with Bill Belichick. But how long do those six last you what happens if the team continues to sink does it undermine what belichick previously did i remember when eli manning was on the tail end of his career shereen williams made an excellent point he could hang around so long it keeps him out of the hall of fame and i think he gets in just because his name's manning and he's got two super bowl mvps i think that's enough but if you add to your resume and your permanent record, bad performances, no matter who you are, player, coach, whoever, it's your body of work. At some point, Belichick undermines what he's done. At some point, he gets fired by Robert Kraft. And I believe when I go back and look at and think about the things Robert Kraft said in Arizona, when he was asked essentially whether or not Bill Belichick can survive another non-playoff season, or will he be allowed to stay as long as he needs to stay to pass Don Shula for the all-time wins record? You look at what Kraft said in response. There is no lifetime pass. There is no blank check for Bill Belichick. And I think there's real tension between Belichick and Kraft, and I think it's always been there. I think Belichick and Kraft are two dramatically different people. I think Belichick is dramatically different than most people who value relationships and value communication. Bill Belichick just wants to do things his own way without being questioned, without having to explain himself to anyone. When the results speak for themselves, you don't have to explain. When the results aren't there, that's when you have to speak. That's when you have to explain. And if the explanation is, well, spending. 27th in spending. And the owner is basically saying in as tactful a way as possible, that's bullcrap. I've always given him what he wants. So spending is not the issue. 
Something else is the issue. And the reality is that Belichick is the man in charge of the program. And if the team fails to make the playoffs, it could be the end for Bill Belichick. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle. Because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the bacon cheese slider, 1921 bacon cheese slider, or chicken bacon ranch slider. And also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 bacon bundle. White Castle. Follow your crave. I was fascinated by the Michael Vick appearance on Tyreek Hill's podcast. It needed to be said. Now, look, there was plenty that still needed to be said that wasn't said. That irony is not lost on me, and it makes it even funnier because there will be times that Tyree Kill reminds the audience and the guest and his co-host what the podcast is called. It needed to be said, so go ahead and say what you have to say. But there are still some things that aren't said. Some things related to Hill that aren't said. Some things related to Mike Vick that weren't said. All 84 minutes today, and I listened to the whole thing, the word dogfighting was never mentioned. And I thought they were never going to even address the two-year donut hole in Vic's career and his life when he was in prison for admitting to dogfighting, gambling on dogfighting, federal charges, also admitted to participating in the killing of dogs that were deemed unfit to fight. And still, I don't understand how he avoided an indictment in Virginia other than the prosecutor there, who I think would have given Vic a pass on everything if the feds hadn't gotten involved. Remember him, Gerald Poindexter? I think he just didn't. That's my opinion. My opinion is he didn't want to get an indictment. That's my opinion. I don't know what the facts are. I don't know if he truly didn't want to do it, but we hear all the time, prosecutor can indict a ham sandwich if he wants to. The flip side of that's also true. If a prosecutor doesn't want to get an indictment, prosecutor knows how to not get that indictment. But what, what struck me was the candor that, that Vic displayed when he eventually talked about, in general terms, the fact that his career in Atlanta came to an end and he had to start again somewhere else. And everybody involved tiptoed around the elephant in the room the dogfighting situation. I wish there had been more candor about that. We all know. Well, that, that that's my concern. We, those of us who lived it, covered it, 
We're football fans when it happened. We know what it was. But you got a whole generation of kids coming up now that don't know without Googling it why Mike Vick had two years where he didn't play. And and I think there's a value in explaining what it was that he did. And I was impressed by his willingness to come out and say, and, and he was conflicted as he was saying it. I wish I had someone who was a father figure. And I did, but I needed someone to tell me what this could do to my life and my career. There was one person, but I won't name who that was. That's what he said. So he wanted someone to tell him he was doing wrong, but someone did tell him he was doing wrong and he ignored that person. I think the truth is he wasn't going to listen to anybody. 43-year-old Mike Vick would listen. Mike Vick from 16 years ago wasn't going to listen. Mike Vick from 22 years ago wasn't going to listen. And this was a six-year ordeal. I remember I used to get very upset when someone would refer to what Mike Vick did as a mistake. It was never a mistake. It was a six-year lifestyle. And I remember all the arguments that he didn't know it was wrong because it was culturally accepted where he grew up. I don't buy that either. At some point, Mike Vick knew he was doing wrong. And at some point, Mike Vick wasn't listening to those who tried to tell him he was doing wrong. He was determined to keep doing what he was doing, and he believed he wasn't going to get caught. And I think the story that impacted me the most was Vick explaining that he bought a Maybach after he got his second contract from the Falcons, got pulled over because the police officer just needed to know what kind of car it was. And Vic thought, I got to get rid of this car. This is too much attention. He, he, he knew. He knew that this house of cards could collapse. He just assumed there would never be a sufficient gust of wind to knock it down. He thought he was impervious to that. He thought he would get away with it because he did for six years. He did. The Falcons never showed the slightest curiosity about this rural property he had in Virginia that he would go to all the time. And it wasn't like it was underground tunnels that were built to hide the dogfighting operation. It was all out there. Now, they painted the buildings black, but that only gets you so far. It's a fascinating chapter in NFL history. And it was fascinating to me to hear Mike Vick talk about it, especially because I felt like Tyreek Hill and his co-host didn't even want to talk about it. And they could have drawn so much more out of him on it needed to be said. But for whatever reason, they didn't want to go there. They thought the Falcons should have brought Vic back the moment he got out of prison, give him a second chance, let bygones be bygones, forget what happened and move on. Vic thought that when he was that age, he now understands why that couldn't happen. And there's a valuable conversation to be had between Vic and Tyree Kill. Because Tyree Kill now, he's older than Vic was when Vic got in trouble, but he's still in that younger mindset that may not understand the connections between actions and consequences, as evidenced by what happened since that podcast was recorded. The podcast was recorded during the off-season program, the Father's Day incident that Tyree Kill's being investigated by the NFL and criminal authorities for that happened afterward. But 
there's a maturity to Mike Vick now, and he could be such a valuable ambassador to players who need to hear from someone they grew up idolizing. Now, look, we're getting toward the end of the generation that grew up idolizing Mike Vick, but it would be great to find a way by the league, by Fox, or by Vick himself to really help be that voice that can cut through the noise. But you know what the reality may be? When you have someone who is as big of a star as Vic was, he ain't going to listen. He's just not going to listen. Mike Vick, age 27, would tell Mike Vick, age 43, to get out of my face and leave me alone. I know what I'm doing. I don't need your advice. If if 43, if if that's the one person who told Mike Vick how he was going to screw up his life, if there was a back to the future angle here where it was 43-year-old Mike Vick travels back in time in a Maybach going 88 miles per hour with 1.21 gigawatts of electricity from a lightning strike, if it's 43-year-old Mike Vick that says to 26-year-old Mike Vick, stop it, you're going to screw up your life, 26-year-old Mike Vick, tell him to get back in that Maybach and go back 88 miles an hour and get yourself a lightning strike and leave me alone because I'm fine. I don't need your advice. It, it just It's fascinating to me because it was such a huge story at the time. And I don't think the passage of time justifies forgetting that it ever happened. And I really felt like, even though... There was an 84-minute podcast interview, and it did eventually come up. I felt like the host of the podcast didn't want to get into it, not the way that maybe he could have or should have. Because I think Vic, for whatever reason, was feeling like he was ready to bear his soul a little bit more than he ultimately did. I was interested to see over the weekend that Mark Murphy, the Packers CEO, in his monthly column. I don't think he does it during the season. I think he does it in the off season, but he addressed the hard knocks angle and he, he, he said, and maybe this was tongue in cheek, but it sure seems like he knows the jets have gotten the short straw. We reported last week, the jets are bracing for said short straw. One of the four teams that can be compelled to do it by the league's formula teams without a new head coach who haven't been to the playoffs in the last two years. And who haven't done hard knocks in 10 years, can be told you're doing it. Bears, Commanders, Packers, Saints are the four teams this year. Jets, Bears, Commanders, not Packers, Jets. I'm sorry, I got Packers on the brain. Bears, Commanders, Jets, Saints are the four teams that can be told they're doing it this year. Jets are bracing for the assignment. Murphy seems to think they're going to get it. We're getting closer and closer to the debut episode. We're about five weeks away from episode one, and we still don't know who the team is going to be. Maybe this is a good day to announce it. Does this count as a bad news dump? The Monday before the 4th of July, when a lot of people aren't working and paying attention anyway, I have to figure we're going to find out who it is pretty soon. Won't we? I'm going to assume it's the Jets unless and until someone tells me otherwise. Now, again, we've never reported that the Jets are the team, just that they are bracing for it. They think it's going to happen even though they don't want it. The Bears don't want it. The Saints don't want it. I'm told the commanders would do it. But I'm also told the NFL doesn't want to pick the commanders until the sale 
to Josh Harris from Daniel Snyder's final. That won't happen until July 20. And even then, the Jets would be a better story, especially because if you do the commanders, how do you properly avoid delving into the Daniel Snyder issue? The NFL has to avoid it. They're not going to get into the nooks and crannies of why Daniel Snyder had to sell the team. They don't want to wallow in that. But if they don't, then people like me are going to say they're whitewashing it. They're brushing it under the rug. They're trying to avoid reality. That's the thing about these reality TV shows, though. When the subject of the show is controlling it, it's not truly reality. It's an infomercial. It's what they want you to see what they want to show you. It's never really the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth related to that. Just before I got started today, I saw this on sports business journal. It's a news item from puck.news. Netflix has landed the docu-series about Jerry Jones and the heyday of the Cowboys. Netflix is paying just under 50 million. It comes from Skydance Sports Never seen footage and interviews with Cowboys stars like Troy Aikman, Michael Irvin, and Emmett Smith. It's being compared to the 10-part Last Dance documentary about the Bulls dynasty of the 90s. We'll be the judge of that as to whether or not it's that good. ESPN made an aggressive bid. Amazon had been interested early on. Netflix gets it for just under $50 million. But, but again... This is going to be exactly what Jerry Jones wants us to see. This is home movies. This is a photo album. You don't put bad pictures in the photo album. You don't put embarrassing scenes in the home movies. Well, unless you're Jerry Jones and you think they might be good. Even then, it's not going to be the whole story. It's going to be the legend that Jones wants to perpetuate, the myth he has created that he wants to continue to push. And, and that's fine. Look, The Last Dance was, I think, what, produced by Michael Jordan, ultimately. We're happy to take whatever we can get, even if it's tainted by the bias of those who create it. We're happy to get the insight. But man, it would be great to get the truth. The actual unvarnished, here's what happened. That would be awesome. That would be worth more than $50 million. One last thing before I get to today's questions. The ESPN bloodletting happened on Friday. And look, from a bad news dump perspective, that was the way to do it. It ends up being news on one of the slowest days of the year because people have disconnected for vacations and a long four-day holiday weekend for those who can get Monday off on top of Tuesday. I don't know how much of that was planned going in, there was reporting from earlier in the month of June that the talent layoffs would happen. The on-air layoffs would occur at some point toward the end of the month. Probably at some point, PR realized, hey, let's just push this to the 30th. And there were a lot of recognizable names from the NFL coverage. Susie Culber, been there forever, 27 years with ESPN. Steve Young, been part of Monday Night Football forever. Matt Hasselbeck from Sunday NFL Countdown, among others. Todd McShay, who I always thought was their protection against Mel Kuyper Jr. leaving, their leverage against him. Because I remember McShay's rise came after there was a tough negotiation between Kuyper and ESPN. So, hey, we need to have somebody else to step in if Kuyper ever walks. 
And lo and behold, Kuiper outlasts McShay because now they got Matt Miller who becomes the new McShay. I think that's the way it goes. But an effort to trim fat. I've seen reporting that Jimmy Pitaro, the president of ESPN, was looking to identify highly compensated on-air people because that would be money that would save more jobs behind the scenes. And that's fine. The one thing that just is so intriguing about all of this, and I feel bad for Pat McAfee, he gets a bunch of mud thrown on him by this because he's just signed a huge contract, five years with ESPN, $85 million for his show to be on ESPN. So his name is trending because people are complaining that McAfee got all these people fired. And folks, that's just not how it works. You understand that, don't you? I mean, you realize that these companies make their decisions based upon how much money they think they're going to make. They're going to invest their assets in the places where they think they're going to profit. They think they're going to get a sufficiently large audience from McAfee and sufficiently significant advertising dollars and engagement that he's going to pay for himself and then some. You know, for the people on air who don't have their own independent following, who don't bring people to the table, who don't bring ratings to the table, who don't bring revenues to the table. Those are the ones who are in jeopardy because they're easily replaced by somebody younger and cheaper and at the early stage of their career. Now, look, I'm not suggesting there was any ageism involved in this, but the reality is if you're identifying people who have the bloated salaries, typically it's the people who have been there longer. And for some of them, like Keyshawn Johnson, I failed to mention him earlier, he's in the second year of a five-year contract worth around $18 million. He gets it all. And there's that weird element to this of, and I don't know enough about finance and accounting to understand how it works, but there's a benefit somehow, some way for taking this as a loss or a write-off or whatever. I don't know. I don't even know what a write-off is, but they do. And they're the ones writing it off. But remember when Ed Werder was let go? And at first he had some other opportunities and ESPN was kind of, well, you know, you've got your buyout and they didn't want to give up his buyout. They still wanted to pay him, if I recall correctly, because it was part of this broader corporate thing. And then he ends up working for ESPN again. It's like it never happened. But this is more about dollars and cents than about the human beings. And there still are human beings involved in this calculation. But at the end of the day, the corporations that are making these decisions, that are acting on these decisions. I know managers and other individuals at the corporations make the decisions, but the implementation comes from a nameless, faceless, what has a name, the corporate name, but it's still a faceless, not human entity that is going to do what's in its best interests and move forward. And look, did they handle the PR side of it as well as they could? Did the dominoes fall in a way that would create something other than natural blowback to the guy who just came in under great fanfare. I think the only thing I would do differently if I was McAfee or ESPN is insist on no one knowing how much money McAfee was going to make. But even then, what, what, what would we think? What would we think? He's making minimum wage. I mean, everyone would think it was a big number. In fact, if they insisted on secrecy, there's a chance that people would think it's an even bigger number than it really is. So, it's an unfortunate circumstance for everyone involved, but folks need to understand ESPN is about making as, most, as much money as possible. There are more options out there for people to spend their time watching and digesting content than ever before. And SportsCenter itself, I saw there was a tweet that went viral in recent days about 
how important Sports Center was in the 90s, and it was. There was a time when you had to go to ESPN and watch Sports Center to see any highlights from the sports that had been played, unless it was covered by your local news or you saw it live or recorded it on a VHS tape. You weren't seeing those highlights. That was the place to go. Does anyone even watch it now? Or is it just what's on TV when there's nothing else to do, nothing else to watch, waiting for the next event? Here's Sports Center. What value is there in Sports Center today? What are you really getting from it? I haven't watched it in years. I haven't watched it intentionally in years. I'll pull up ESPN because there's something coming up that I want to watch, so I'm getting the tail end of Sports Center. But ESPN needs to pivot to the way people are consuming content today, what's paying the bills, how that all works. And they made the decisions that they needed to make. And frankly, for the people who were complaining about the way the decisions were made, if you were the ones making the decisions, you probably would have made the same decisions that ESPN ended up making. Let's. Dietz and Watson's been making meats and cheeses the right way since forever. What's that mean? It means never cutting corners, ever. It means cooking, not processing. It means our Virginia brand ham that's cooked to perfection, then twice baked to layer the flavors. It takes more time, but you can taste the difference. We come to work every day to do it the right way, even if it's the hard way. Because if it's not right for us, it's not right for you. Dietz and Watson, it's a family thing since 1939. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed, also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Take a look at some questions here. PFT PM Posse, how do you and other NFL insiders talk among yourselves regarding information without revealing too much of what you might know, leading to them getting the scoop or intentionally or unintentionally revealing sources? I don't do a whole lot of conversing with other NFL insiders about what I know and how I know it because I don't want people to know the things I know. If there's something that I'm trying to report now, sometimes what will happen is there's a story that I think needs to come out. And I've hit a dead end in my effort to try to get what I need to know. So I'll deliberately raise with someone who I think might be in a position to get more information where things are. At the end of the day, I don't care about getting credit. Now, if it's going to be a great story that that NBC will be happy that we broke and and it is a an indicator to the fans out there and those haters, especially who think all we do is aggregate. Oh, well, I guess they didn't aggregate that one. But for the most part, I like to hang on to the information that I become aware of 
and I like to develop it into the story unless it's something that I feel like is very pressing and that needs to be reported. That's when I'll start poking around and sharing that information. I'll give you a great example. This story that we reported a few weeks ago about someone in the NFL losing $8 million gambling last year. I heard one name, poked around a little bit, got pushed in a different direction toward another name. And I just eventually realized there's no way that you're ever going to know with sufficient certainty who it was because the sports book is never going to tell you. And the person involved is never going to admit to it. There's going to be no way to know it with certainty. So I'm done with it. And I'm not going to tell it to some other insider thinking, oh, this person will get to the bottom of it because they won't either. But if it was something that I thought was very important, and if it was a puzzle that could be solved, I'm just not in a position to solve it, but maybe somebody else with their sources could, that's when I'll share that information. Oh, Macy's Twitter account active again. Pops, what are our plans for the fourth? Are we having a fireworks show? You know, I don't like the big booms. You know, Macy's already been spending the the recent evenings with the fireworks going off down in the gym. That's her safe space, rattled by the noises. I've heard stories of dogs around here locally running away from home with the noises. Um, I don't even know if I'm going to buy fireworks this year. I've said in the past that I've learned as I've gotten to different ages in my life that I've reached my lifetime limit of this certain thing. And one thing I've reached my lifetime limit of is fireworks. Like there's nothing you can show me that I haven't seen before over and over again. I'm all oohed and awed out about watching fireworks. They, they really don't do anything for me. I probably won't buy any this year. Maybe I'll get some. If we end up having a cookout tomorrow night, maybe I'll get some. I don't want it to be protracted. I don't want it to be loud. I don't want to traumatize Macy any more than she's going to be traumatized. So Macy, good news there. But I do know this. Between tonight and tomorrow night, it's going to sound like a war zone here. Anywhere that they've legalized it now and here you can... There's tents everywhere this time of year. You can get all sorts of stuff that is that shoots into the air and is loud. And it does sound like a war zone. Uh, and uh, I feel bad for the dogs that that uh, are sensitive to that. I know Macy is indeed one of them. Michael Cameron Vey. Is Mike Vrabel on the hot seat if the Titans have a down season? He seems like a coach who gets the most out of his players, but has been clashing with management seemingly since he first arrived. I don't think he clashes with ownership. I think he and John Robinson clashed, and guess who won? Who won? Robinson didn't win. Vrabel won. Now, I don't know how much say Vrabel had in the hiring of Rand Carthon, the new GM, but if Carthon's smart, he'll realize Vrabel's got the juice here. Vrabel is the coach of the year. Vrabel takes whatever he gets thrown and turns it into something. That year that he won coach of the year, they set the record. They they shattered the record for the number of total players on a roster in a given season. So I think Vrabel's fun. I think Vrabel falls into the category, just like with Mike Tomlin. If he would get fired, he would instantly be a top candidate for every vacancy, and there would be teams that currently have coaches that would think about firing their coaches to try to hire Vrabel. Same with Tomlin. There aren't many coaches that fall into that category. Andy Reid does. And it's ridiculous to even think about it because Andy Reid ain't getting fired. But there's a small group. If they get fired right now, 
it would be land rush to try to hire that guy. Let's let's try to let's try to figure out who's in and who's out of that group. I would say that group consists of the guys who would immediately be hired if available, even by a team that isn't looking for a coach. Tomlin, Vrabel, John Harbaugh, Andy Reid, Kyle Shanahan. Who else? Small group. Now, Sean Payton, but he just got there in Denver. There aren't many more that come to mind. I'm probably missing somebody, and somebody's going to be pissed because I didn't mention them. Nick Sirianni, would Nick Sirianni immediately get another job if he got fired right now? Immediately? Would somebody fire someone to hire Nick Sirianni? That's close. Still early. Still early. Would would get another job at some point and maybe would be an A-list candidate for a vacancy, but not somebody that that you're going to have teams thinking, well, you know, we were fine with the guy we had, but now we can get Mike Vrabel or Mike Tomlin or Andy Reid or John Harbaugh or Sean Payton. Payton's right on the cusp because now, now look, we know what was supposed to happen last year. Because I'm sitting here thinking, well, you know what? He took a year off and nobody hired him. But the Dolphins wanted to. The Dolphins wanted to. So I think Peyton's in the group. I think if Peyton would get fired for some reason right now by the Broncos, there would be somebody else interested to the point where they'd say, well, we need to move on from our guy. So what is that? Five? Vrabel, Tomlin, Reed, Harbaugh, Peyton. All Shanahan at six. I'm probably missing somebody else, like I said. But, I mean, Pete Carroll, if he would get fired right now, I know he's 71, 72, but he'd be another one. Belichick, I don't know. I think the shine's come off a little bit for Belichick. I don't know that there's going to be a guy out there owning a team saying, I have to fire my coach and hire Bill Belichick, because I don't know that I want that headache. I don't know that I want the gruff, angry Bill Belichick coming in wanting this, wanting that, wanting this, wanting to change everything, wanting to do things his way, not wanting to be questioned, wants to be left alone. I don't know. I don't know how that goes. Trying to make sure I'm not missing anybody else, but I think I have all of them. Anyway, interesting question that really wasn't the question asked, but it's the question I chose to answer. Sean Alvishar, isn't it odd that ESPN makes major layoffs and ruins people's lives, but also brutally overpays broadcast teams like Buck, Aikman, Romo, and Brady. Well, well, first of all, Sean, Romo and Brady don't work for ESPN, but Buck and Aikman do. And it's become a star-driven system. Stephen A. Smith making a ton of money. Buck and Aikman making a ton of money. Pat McAfee making a ton of money. Shefty making a ton of money. That's the way it works now. And, yeah, look, it's never good to involuntarily lose your job if you wanted to stay. But for some of these folks, they have a contract that's going to be bought out. They're going to receive every penny. Now, look, it's not just enough to say to someone, you're going to get your money, but you're losing your platform. You're losing your voice. You know, if NBC came to me right now and said, hey, you know what? We will pay you everything that you're due to make for the balance of your current contract. For the next four years, we're going to pay you every penny. But you just can't do anything. You can't post on your website. You can't do podcasts. You can't do anything. I'd still feel like, I mean, I wouldn't feel like I won a a lottery. I would feel like I've I've had my livelihood taken away because the thing that I choose to do, I can't do anymore. 
So what am I going to do? So even for the folks who got paid, you are losing your platform, you're losing your voice, you're losing your relevance, and you're losing that thing that you that you very much wanted to do in the first place. All right. Uh, looking for some other questions here. Tommy Caruso, on Friday, you discussed a lack of financial incentive for upper deck seats. Will your thoughts change once in-game betting is rolled out? Will teams try and get a cut of wagers placed in the stadium or that violates certain legal regulations? Look, I, I think that the real in-game betting, when it really takes off, is going to be people at home. People wandering around with their phones. People in a position to see what happened with the last play and what wagers they want to place on the next play. And you don't even need to have a feed of the game. You can create an app. And the AAF had something like this. And the technology ended up with BetMGM, where you see on your phone the movement of the players, the digital equivalent of what's happening in the game. And then, boom, the play ends, and you can make your bet on what's going to happen on the next play. You don't even have to be watching the game. So I don't think that's a major issue. This is about how much revenue is generated by the upper deck and how much cost is associated with having the upper deck. There are owners out there who are considering that business reality and recognizing the profit isn't huge and the profit may not be worth it. And maybe there's a way that it becomes even more profitable. It's more exclusive. You can charge more for the tickets if you have fewer seats available, supply and demand and whatnot. Our good friend Pauline, and she's posed this question via email. I forgot to answer it the other day. Talk us through some of the sports memorabilia behind you. There isn't a whole lot of sports memorabilia. I guess there is. I've got a Larry Fitzgerald jersey that is signed that NBC gave to me as a Christmas present the first year we partnered with NBC. And we put it in a frame and we put it up there and it's been there. And, you know, do I have other jerseys that maybe I'd like to put in a frame and put up there? I've got the Lawrence Taylor jersey. I probably need to get that framed and put that up there because he wrote some very interesting stuff on it. So that that may be, it may be time for Larry Fitzgerald jersey to go. Sorry, Larry. I think I need to get that Lawrence Taylor jersey up there in place of Larry Fitzgerald. That needs to be a project over the next three weeks of the PFT Live hiatus. I've got Metrodome seats behind me when they tore down the old stadium and they sold the seats. I got a couple from the Vikings. I've got some Sports Illustrated covers framed. Signed Adrian Peterson photo in the middle. And that's something that I purchased personally. And this was years ago. Had a cousin, young cousin needed a liver transplant. And we got a bunch of people to donate stuff that we auctioned off. And it was great. We raised a bunch of money for him. But I personally bought for like, I don't know. I mean, I paid the highest price, 175 or something like that for the Adrian Peterson signed photo. Uh, I've got the Ghostbusters Lego house that I built last year. It sits on coffee table that my nephew made and it's got a bunch of pictures under a resin of different nfl figures and things and whatnot i've got stacks of father of mine behind me just got the latest shipment in there's a picture of my son back there my favorite picture of him he was about a year old we were at my sister's house looks like a little amish boy long time ago 25 years ago Uh, i've got a candy dish that is actually and i found this online it's an old kiss album that they basically melt onto a form that turns it into a dish. So I got Hershey's Kisses, that's the go-to in there, both almond and dark chocolate in that candy dish. 
uh, back there. And I've also got the cover enlarged of the only PFT season preview magazine from 2010. We did it once. It was a pain in the ass. It was a ton of work. It wasn't nearly worth it from a dollars and cents standpoint, but we can say we did it once. I also have, and I'm admitting to a misdemeanor and or a felony here. I've got the Florio Street sign from a street in Oakland. And it it really is amazing what happened. Because I probably shouldn't have taken it, but I just happened to be walking by it and it fell off the pole. It just fell off the pole. The damnedest thing. What a coincidence that someone named Florio would be walking by a pole with a sign on it that said Florio Street and the sign would just fall off the pole. Really is amazing. So how could I not take it? I mean, how could I not, right? That's from 1985. So all statutes of limitations or statues, if you prefer that uh, formulation of the word, they've all expired by now because that's been 38 years ago. I mean, that, that's a keeper. That, that's one that like goes to my son and his children. I mean, it's got to get passed down generation to generation. And again, it's, it's 38 years old and it's metal and it looks the same as it did the day that it fell off the pole. The one thing that you may be able to see right about here in a frame, that's a combo platter. And I've posted a picture of this before. It's got two things in it, just to kind of show the weird way life goes. It's got my thank you note in cursive to my grandparents for buying me a Vikings coat when I was like nine or 10 years old. That's the top part. The lower part is the thank you note that Roger Goodell sent me after I visited him in 2010 and we took him something. I can't remember what it was. Some some token, some gesture. He sent me a handwritten thank you note. So they're both in there because it just kind of shows how how the the world has uh, has changed. And also, let me turn this a little bit. That's the uh, bookcase back there that we've got uh, just a bunch of different things in. Um, Football cards, old football cards from when I was growing up, the Walter Payton rookie card. The year that I really got into buying as many Topps football cards as I can and and got like a whole box of them, of the packs. It was great to just get the box that you would see at the local store. I got the whole box. I got all 36 packs in one box. And I had, you know, doubles, triples, quadruples. I had like seven of whatever slappy it was and when i went back in 1990 and looked through them all thinking i would have like five water paytons when i was aware that the walton payer rookie card was worth a couple hundred bucks at the time i had one but fortunately it's in good shape and it's it's in a lucite case but i got a bunch of those old football cards over there laying on the shelves i've got a great randy moss mcfarland figure that that is from and I don't know that this is deliberately and specifically when they picked it, but it's it's how he looked the day in Green Bay, his last playoff win with the Vikings, his last victory with the Vikings. It was a week before they lost to the Eagles in the divisional round, and then Moss was traded to the Raiders. But he's got the, the fro, and he's got the white on white, and that's the day he rubbed his butt on the goalpost in what Joe Buck called a disgusting act, but I thought it was awesome then. And I think it's awesome now. So that's pretty much everything. I've got an old Vikings beer stand up there. That's got really old ticket stubs in it. I mean, really old ticket stubs. I've got one from 4th of July. I have to tweet this. I did it a few years ago. 4th of July, 1986 A's blue Jays double header 
followed by a fireworks display. And the people who sat in the bleachers got to go out on the outfield grass to actually see the fireworks because they were behind the bleachers. So it was kind of neat. And there was a group of four, five, six of us. We went out onto the grass and watched the uh, the fireworks at the the Oakland Coliseum, which the A's will eventually be bolting. All right, enough of that. Tommy Caruso, not a question, but I love the Legos Ghostbusters house in the background. Huge Lego guy went to law school, literally two blocks from the actual firehouse. The guys there are really nice and love people stopping by. And next time you're in the area, you should go. Yeah, it's actual firehouse in New York. And I think I've been by it and you, you can't miss it when you see it. But that is the the house that is the Lego Ghostbusters. Uh, SF Monk Monk, if the state of New York hadn't ponied up for a new stadium, where would the bills go? That arises from a comment made last week by the Erie County administrator who said if they hadn't paid for a new stadium in Buffalo, the bills would have moved. I don't know where they would have gone. London? I don't know. Somewhere that would have either had an NFL-ready stadium or that would have paid for the bills to have an NFL-ready stadium. But there would have been a plan B. Somewhere, somehow, the bills would have found another home if Buffalo hadn't come up with the money to build the stadium. Anastasia Williams, is there a surprise team that you'd like to come out of nowhere and make a run in the playoffs, a team that reminds you of the 2021 Bengals? Hadn't really thought of that. I mean, the Bears possibly? Have they put enough around Justin Fields? Will we see the kind of jump from Justin Fields that we saw last year from Jalen Hurts? Nobody really saw it coming from Jalen Hurts last year until it happened. Matthew Berry was all over it. That was his ride or die guy for fantasy. And then Hertz proved he could do it. He could step up. That's one possibility, the Bears, and that division is wide open. I mean, look, the Buccaneers just won the Super Bowl three years ago, and people laughed when Tristan Wirf said he thinks they can go 12-5. and five. But when you look at their schedule, there are some wins there. If they can get the most out of the guys who are still there, who were part of the Super Bowl team, and if there is any validity to the idea that Tom Brady leaving has kind of pushed away distractions and pushed away kind of the dark cloud that hovered over the team last year. And they're going to be overlooked. They're no longer going to be a team that everyone uses as a measuring stick. They could maybe steal some wins and end up being a pretty good team this year. If they get good quarterback play out of whoever ends up winning the job and it should be Baker Mayfield, but who knows? So those are a couple that, that come to mind as possibilities. I think it's likely to happen in the NFC because in the AFC, it feels like every team is kind of a contender except for the Texans and maybe the Colts, possibly the Raiders. But you got 13 teams that you look at and say, there's a way things play out that that team could make a deep playoff run. So I think the the sleeper could come from the NFC, maybe the commanders now that the Daniel Snyder Curse has been broken. Eric Bieniemy running the offense. A lot of praise for what he's doing. Sam Howell surprising people as the quarterback of the team. The defense may be better if the offense is better. Commanders, Bears, Bucks. Those are teams that that intrigue me for 2023. And and look, anybody in the NFC South, because we're not expecting anyone to come out of there and be great. I mean, the Falcons, if Desmond Ritter does what they think he can do, plenty of weapons around him. Panthers, if Bryce Young makes an impact right away. Saints have a chance. 
Although I'm not as high on the Saints as some others, just because of Derek Carr. I think there's a ceiling to Derek Carr, just like the ceiling to Kirk Cousins. So maybe they'd win the division and maybe win a playoff game. Maybe, maybe. He's never won a playoff game. He's only played in one. He missed the other one because he broke his leg right before the playoffs. But how about make the playoffs and go one and out? That's kind of what you would expect from the New Orleans Saints. Any updates? This is DRS Mitch on the Gruden, Flores, and Favre legal battles. Now, Gruden's got a case against the NFL and Commissioner Roger Goodell. That's pending on appeal on the question of whether or not the league can force it to arbitration. Still chugging along more than a year after it was filed. The Brian Flores case still chugging along with the judge being asked to reconsider the decision that sent some of the claims to arbitration and allowed some of them to stay in court. Flores and his two co-plaintiffs have some claims that they're trying to get the judge to change her mind about and put in court. The Favre lawsuit against Shannon Sharp is still moving forward. Sharp filed a motion to dismiss. We're waiting for a final disposition on that. And if it's not dismissed, it goes forward. You know, none of these cases have gone forward yet. They've been, it just shows you how slowly the civil justice system moves because there's preliminary efforts that the defendant can engage in to try to knock out the case or push it to arbitration or do this or do that. And it can be years before you actually get to the meat of the case and begin to figure out what really happened, who said what to whom and when. Who did this? Who did that? What do the documents show? What do the witnesses say? That's the discovery process. That doesn't happen until you get past all this preliminary maneuvering aimed to either get the case in a more favorable forum or to get the case knocked out altogether. It takes time. It involves appeals. And then eventually, inevitably, barring a settlement, you get to the point where we start to find out what happened. Brock Bollinger, is the NFL rigged? Don't answer this question if the answer is yes. Very well done. And I'll say what I have said many a time. I do not believe the NFL is rigged because I don't think the NFL could pull it off. I don't think they could effectively rig games, and I don't think they could keep it quiet discreetly. There'd be too many people who would have to be involved. I don't think the NFL cares to rig games, but I don't think they could do it if they even wanted to. It just doesn't work that way. There's too much to lose by doing it. And what do you really gain? People are still tuning in by the millions to watch games of the good teams, tens of millions to watch playoff games, 100 million plus to watch the Super Bowl, regardless of who it is. There's no reason for the NFL to rig games. Last one, and I can't remember the answer to this one. Fishman WVU. Not an NFL question, but when was the last WVU football game you attended? I really don't recall. I can't remember the last time I went. I think there was a year at some point after we started with NBC that we bought season tickets. Oh, that was the game. I can't remember who it was, but we had season tickets one year, like around the 30-yard line, and then they had this new end zone area where we bought season tickets that year. It's probably been 10 years ago. And I think I went to a game then, and that was it. It's been a long time. Oh, wait. I I think it was even after my son and I were on the sideline for that epic game against Baylor. The final score was like 122 to 116. Geno Smith, 2012. That's the most memorable game I was at. But I think I was at one kind of like meaningless early season playing some low-level team. I think I was at one of those games at that point uh, after the epic Baylor 
Geno Smith, Stedman Bailey, Tavon Austin game. That would have been 2012, 2012, 2012, 2012. Uh, all right. That's it. We'll be back Wednesday. If there's anything that I didn't get to. Oh, wait, last one. Thomas Allison, why do you hate the Cardinals so much? I don't hate the Cardinals. I don't. Why would I hate the Cardinals? The Cardinals are irrelevant. People hate great teams. There's no reason to hate the Cardinals. But I'm not going to look the other way on dysfunction. And fans of a team like the Cardinals should be glad that someone is calling out the dysfunction. If you ignore the dysfunction, what happens? The dysfunction continues. If you call it out, maybe it stops. I'll never understand this mentality by fans who want their team to be better, but resent efforts by people on the outside who aren't fans of the team to try to make it better. To call out when Michael Bidwell is accused of doing things that he shouldn't do. To call out the team for the shameful statement that was released after Terry McDonough filed his claim earlier in the offseason. To try to get to the bottom of what happened with the Jonathan Gannon tamper. This isn't an expression of hatred to a team. I mean, really, if I hated the Cardinals, I'd say, hey, you know what, Cardinals? Thumbs up. Everything you're doing is perfectly fine. Keep doing what you've been doing. You've gotten this NFL thing figured out. You're on the right track. It's just a matter of time before you become the next NFL dynasty. If I hated them, that's what I would say. Trying to make them better. Trying to call out these issues so they stop, so they treat people the right way, so they treat their players the right way. And look at the horrible marks they got from the NFLPA survey that was released right around the scouting combine late February, early March. You change because of that. You improve when people are calling you out and embarrassing you. So Cardinals fans who want to be pissed at me, I don't care if you're mad, but take a step back and ask yourself, what does more harm or good for our interests to have the best possible team? Somebody pointing out the problems in the hope that they'll be rectified or somebody saying absolutely nothing so that nothing will ever change. That's it for today. We'll be back on Wednesday, the 5th of July, as we get deeper and deeper into the offseason and closer and closer to the return of PFT Live. We are back on Monday, the 24th of July, three weeks from today. It will fly by. I know that because the first two weeks have already flown by. Thanks, as always, for some of your time. And again, we'll see you back here on Wednesday. The longest field goal ever attempted is 76 yards. The longest field goal ever missed? Also 76 yards. Why bring this up? Because knowing your limits matters, both when you're kicking a field goal and when you gamble. Betting more than you're comfortable with is like trying a 70-yard field goal. It probably won't go well. So set a limit when you gamble and stick to it. Want more helpful tips like this? Go to KeepItFunOhio.com for games, quizzes, and lots of ways to keep your gambling from getting out of hand. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.